Well, thank you, worship team. That's great stuff. I appreciated the passage that Larry and Bernal read because it's what we want to talk about. Two simple verses. You're all familiar with it more than likely. You've heard it every Christmas. I'll read it again. And we'll pray. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. The angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Let's pray. Our great God, we sing glory in the highest to you. We honor you. We praise you. We worship you. In these moments, we want to hear you. Because, Lord, if we could understand just an iota more of how great you are, I know it will evoke a deeper, more expressive worship of who you are. So might that happen in these moments. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the emotion around Christmas, and there's a lot of it, For some, it's stress. Hopefully, there's a lot of joy. For some, if you're a child or, like me, an older child, giddiness, uh, you you, you like that sense of family, and my daughter Angela's coming home, and I'm psyched about that, and so there's a sense of giddiness, and maybe your children get a little giddy when they see a few boxes underneath the tree, and my Emily was like, Dad, where are the presents? No, when are you going to wrap them? Because uh, she wants to do what I did, start shaking them. You know how that goes. And uh, in some cases, relief on December 26th, um, there's, there's relief. There's a lot of emotion around Christmas, but probably the one emotion we wouldn't connect with Christmas is fear. The only fear I had growing up around Christmas is that Ma would make me eat this horrible-looking brick called fruitcake. <laughs> that stuff was nasty. I don't know who thought of that, but fruitcake made me afraid because there's no way I wanted to try that any more than the one time I was forced to. Fear. And, And yet we read right in the text, it was one of the emotions. It's a normal question is, why would these shepherds be afraid? I mean, they're out minding their own business in a field. What was it that would, that would cause them fear? And we read it's the glory of the Lord. Now, glory is a word that we throw around in our Christianese with little recognition of what the word really means or what we're even talking about when we talk about the glory of God. In one sense, glory means the honor, the the excellent reputation of God. It could be described as the visible manifestation of his attributes. In the Old Testament, the word glory referred to to that which was weighty, was heavy, that type of thing. We would probably use the word awesome. In the New Testament, the word doxa meant opinion. It would be kind of like the idea of, I think uh, this pizza's better than that pizza. So you would have a doxa about pizza. It would be glory about a pizza. And so you have Weightiness and opinion refers to glory. We're going to tie that even more. 
And so when we talk about glory, we got God on one side who's weighty, and everything else you want to try to put on the scale isn't even tipping it. God's glory is weighty. And it's a sense of an opinion. God's opinion, heaven's opinion of Jesus. God's glory shown around the shepherds. And so when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about the one with an awesome reputation. Intrinsic glory. And it's because of his awesome splendor. But in another sense, when God's glory shows up here, it shows up in light and brilliant splendor, in radiance. And God's glory means that bright light that surrounds the revelation of himself. That dazzling majesty. Radiance is visible to mortals. My wife's favorite pastor would define it. God's glory is the brightness that surrounds his revelation of himself. It's the visible manifestation of his attributes. Because there's sheer weight. There's a sheer reality of his presence that brings a weightiness. And the scriptures tell us there's a brightness that accompanies that weightiness. And that's what we're reading right here. Consider Moses in Exodus 23. God called him to lead the Israelites. And as he was heading them towards the promised land, it was becoming kind of stressful. And the people were complaining. Moses looked at God and said, okay, I get it. You're going to lead me here. But God, don't send us up here. Don't send us over there unless you go with us. God honored that. He heard Moses' request. But Moses wasn't done. Moses asked God one more thing. Not only, God, would your presence please go up with us. God, could I indulge with one more request? And he has God's attention. There's so many requests he could have made. He could pray, God, would you please shut the mouth of these complainers? They're driving me crazy. You maybe been there when your kids complain. He could have prayed, God, defeat all the enemies that were coming before us. But he doesn't request that. He asks one thing. Glory. Show me your glory. We cross a threshold when we make similar requests. When our deepest desire is not the things from God, not a favor from God, but God himself we cross the threshold. When it's him we long to walk into our life, to be the center of our life, when that's what we desire above all, we cross a threshold. Moses is really saying, God, show me your radiance. Show me your heart-stopping, ground-shaking, extra-spectacularness. Forget the money. God, I don't want power. I can't live without you. I want more God. It's simplest. That's what he's asking. I'd like to see more of your glory. God, steal my breath away with, a, with, with a, just a, an iota of yours. He wanted to know God more intimately, more knowledgeably. And God responds amazingly. And God tells him, no mortal can see me and live. But Moses, I will give you a glimpse. Because at the core the nature of the maker was too much to bear. And so what did Moses get? He got the back. He got the after effects of God's glory passing 
by, and the result Moses' face lit up. And that's just the effects of his glory, the back of it, if we may. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 tells us that Israel could not even look at the face of Moses because the effect of the glory on Moses' face, which had even faded. It was that bright and that radiant. The question I have is, shouldn't Moses' request be yours? And I pray that is your request this Christmas. Forget the iPad, forget the iPod, forget the new computers, forget all the toys. We need a glimpse of God. And such sighting changes us. And it did the shepherds on that quiet night. His glory is his brilliance. Let's follow this through scripture because it's significant. The book of Ezekiel, which is just loaded with imagery. An incredible book of the prophet. It's a portrayal, really, of God's glory. And he has a vision of divine glory. Verse 28. As the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Notice that sense of terror at the glory of God. The prophet goes on to describe actually the future of Israel, into, even into the millennium, and describes this glory of God, its brilliance, and often uses brightness and radiance in description of it. With all the complexity of the vision, the purpose of Ezekiel is to introduce people to the glory of God and to magnify it. First Timothy 5, or 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16 we realize that God's inner core is radiating with inapproachable light that no man can see and live because man would disintegrate because at the core, God is light, brilliant. He's a God of glory. Revelation 21, 23. Concerning the new Jerusalem, the Bible says the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illuminated it. That is exciting for many reasons. One, you'll never hit your shin on the end of a bed frame again. That is lethal. You won't have to worry about that in glory because there will be light. And what's that light? The glory of the Lord. And it's appropriate that it's God's revelation of himself. The brightness, the splendor. God's brightness is that surrounds his revelation of himself and it should be accompanied by such brightness and splendor. For the glory of God is the visible manifestation. It's radiance and perfections such that no one could gaze upon it and live. And yet, he calls forth such great delight and deep awe from us when we behold it even in just part. The shepherds were surrounded by the glory of the Lord. And there was fear. And appropriately so. God's glory is revealed in several ways. And to understand the Christmas story, we need to know God is glorious because he's manifested himself gloriously. In other words, we let God shape our understanding of who God is. We don't shape him by our understanding. God has gloriously revealed himself. And so let's let us shape or let, let's God shape our understanding. How has God revealed his glory? Well, he's done it in several ways. One is in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. It's Psalm 19, 1 through 2. You see, on a clear night, if you could look at the sky covering the earth, at one time the naked eye could see about 3,000 3, stars. But scientists with their telescopes can see to the edge of the Milky Way and have calculated that our, ga- our galaxy alone houses over 200 billion stars. These same scientists estimate the universe contains at least one million other galaxies. What does that tell us? All these stars, all these galaxies are preeminent missionaries because they declare the glory of God. You see, God gets bigger as you and I listen to the heavens. God gets bigger when we listen to creation. That there's a glorious God in the heavens declare the glory of God. When you drove here and saw that beautiful snow, that beautiful snow was telling you that God is glorious. It's beautiful snow, isn't it? How great is it to have a God who spoke and said, here, show up, snow. Not only that, show up, but I want to say, look how beautiful you are because I want you to reflect my beauty. The heavens declare the glory of God, but that's not all. We reveal that, we're told in the scripture that God's glory was revealed in the tabernacle. Exodus 40. The tabernacle was set up one year after the exodus from Egypt. Nine months after the arrival at Mount Sinai. And why was it set up? Tabernacle would follow God's people. Because God wanted his glory to be preeminent. God has a passion for his glory. That there be a visible recognition that he alone is God. And his, re- his glory was revealed by a cloud, if you remember the story, that would rest above the tabernacle. And so when the people saw the cloud, they would be reminded, we better take God seriously. God's here. I mean, God's unique presence is with us as his people. God's glory came, rested on the tabernacle, and his glory cloud, we're told, filled the holy of holies, that most intimate place. God's glory filled it. And it came in a cloud, because it couldn't be revealed fully. And so it came in a cloud and rested across uh, above the tabernacle. So the glory of God with Israel in the tabernacle, and whenever they moved... They would take the tabernacle down, move it with them, and that cloud of God's glory would follow in a sense, or lead, and rest above the tabernacle. Now, if we fast forward 450 years from Exodus 40, we arrive at 1 Kings 8. God's glory is revealed in the tabernacle, and we read in 1 Kings 8, it's revealed in the temple. By this time, God's choice to build the temple was Solomon, Solomon's temple had been completed, and it was magnificent. It was two times at least the size of the tabernacle. And when construction was finished, the priests, the Levites, they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. 1 Kings 8, 4 through 6 tells us this. They stationed the Ark under the wings of about two huge 15-foot cherubim. And look what happened. 1 Kings 8, 9, 11 tells us, There is nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, about 500 years earlier, where Yahweh made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. It happened that when priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Yahweh, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. Why? For the glory of Yahweh 
filled the house of Yahweh. It was the glory of God. And this is what happened at the tabernacle. This is what happened in the temple, that God declaring he will be with his people, and that he alone is God, and his glory filled the temple. God's glory descended. It took residence in his temple, reminding the people that he dwells there with him, and that he is unique, and he is the one true God. And so they got, in a sense, a taste of glory. And glory always evokes worship. It did in the Old Testament. Psalm 8 through 5, Psalm 8, 5, speaking of Jesus, says he's crowned with glory and majesty. Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You see, this revelation of his glory was met and evoked worship, as it still should. And so we have the glory of God revealed in creation, and, and it showed up in the tabernacle, and it showed up in the temple. And so God's people were most blessed, but then tragedy struck. Over 350 years after the glory of God filled Solomon's temple, the wickedness of the southern kingdom of Judah became so great for Yahweh to bear. And 2 Chronicles 36 reveals to us that the people defiled the house of Yahweh, and God sent messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet to them, and they would not listen. They persisted in their wickedness and rebellion, and we read in the scripture there was written over the house of the Lord, Ichabod, which meant this, the glory has departed. No longer there was their glory. No longer was there this manifestation of God's presence around them. And when glory leaves, you're in big trouble. <laughs> They're in big trouble. They were away from God's personal presence. His power was unavailable. When glory leaves, you're in big trouble. What's written over your life right now? What's written over your home? Is there evidence of the presence and the power of God in your life? Or is there written across your life Ichabod? God's unique presence the intimate presence of God is what you're no longer experiencing. Why does that happen? Because you've determined other things are more important. You've placed them in the center of your life. Could be a boyfriend, girlfriend. Could be a career. Could be money. But you've pushed God aside and you said, I'm going to make you the center of my life. Whether it be money, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it would be, you're putting something else in the center of your life. And God wants you to know it won't work. They're not good enough, or it's not good enough. And we begin to live that way with something else in the center of our life. You can bet Ichabod is written over our life in the sense that we no longer experience that intimate presence of God. Because only glory in his presence can be in the center of our life. And for the first time in Israel's history, Israel is without the presence of God. God was no longer uniquely, intimately present in the lives of his people. The intimate guidance they'd experience, the brilliance of his revelation, the personal encouragement of God, gone. Gone. And don't miss this, between the Old Testament and New Testament, you might have a little commentary, but between the Old Testament and New Testament are 400 years of silence. 
400 years without a word from God. 400 years. No sign, no nothing, no glory. No glory cloud. No intimate presence. But God's glory returns. And where did it return to? Temple? You'd think. No. Maybe the people erected another tabernacle. No, it, it didn't come there. Jerusalem. Zion, God's holy city. I'll bet you his glory returned there. No. You know, we just read it. Returns to a field. Among some shepherds. We read the glory of the Lord shown around him. We hadn't read about that glory for quite a while. People hadn't even experienced that. And we read his glory shows up. His unique, glorious presence. The weightiness of his presence. And how did it show up? In brilliant light. In heart-stopping fashion. So much so, the shepherds went, whoa. And they were afraid. And it wasn't the glory of the angel. I think sometimes when we read that, we think, well, oh, it must have been the glory of the angel. It's, that's not. It's clear. It's the glory of Yahweh, the glory of the Lord. And there was nothing perfect about that night. It wasn't that the night was perfect. What was perfect is glory showed up. God's glory. That's what made it perfect. And this glory is uniquely his. And it was so noticeable, it evoked terror. We read in John 1.14, the disciple writes, And the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The manifested presence of his glory showed up. Now we see the glory fall in a field to some simple shepherds. This visible manifestation of God in human flesh comes on the scene in Jesus, the exact representation of God. And when Jesus shows up, don't miss this, he reveals the weightiness of glory, the weightiness of God, and the opinion of God. You see, in Jesus, he shows us both. He shows us what God thinks, which is all that really matters, the opinion of God, the logos of God, and he showed us the weightiness. That's why he shows up so often in light and brilliance and splendor on the Mount Transfiguration, if you remember how he showed up. Disciples are like, whoa, this, this brightness, this brilliance, this light that accompanied his revelation. And what's interesting is I always thought, man, these shepherds, I mean, how cool is that? I mean, on a boring night. I mean, for the shepherds, a good night was a boring night. They, they didn't want any wolves. They didn't want any attention. They wanted a boring night. Well, they didn't get one on this night. <laughs> this is far from boring, but can you imagine them? We don't read any names about these shepherds. We don't know if they're named Joe, Bob. We don't know what, what their name. I'm doubting it was that. But, but we don't know what their names were. And I always wonder, I mean, these they're kind of in a prominent position here in the New Testament. Certainly it would be good to know their names, but we don't know. And yet they grace the greatest guest list, probably for the, one of the greatest moments in human history. And we read no names. Why? 
because it really doesn't matter what their names were. It was all about glory returning. The glory of the Lord shone around them. In the shepherds, the stable, they only take significance because of God's presence. Because when God showed up, he takes even the most mundane and makes it glorious. You see, our God is full of surprises. He comes to places we least expect. His glory comes and it returns. And shepherds and indeed the world would never be the same. And when God's glory is at the center of the focus of God's people, life was rich then when people, Israel, experienced And God's power was the norm in their life. And there was joy and there's hope and there's peace when God's glory was present. And that hasn't changed. When God's at the center of your life, it begins to make sense. Life is richer. God's power operating in your life is the norm, not the exception. There's joy. There's hope. And there's peace when we're walking closely with this God in intimacy. And what did this glory of the Lord do? It ushered in good news. We no longer need to fear. We no longer need to search. We no longer need to wonder because God drew near. That's the great message we sang, Emmanuel. God with us. God drew near. The glory of God had returned. Because he loves us. Because he wants to be intimately present with you and with me. Do you know that's why the Ten Commandments, the first one says you shall have no other gods before me. It's not like God is some self-centered, ego-power-trip guy. God knows that whatever gods we place before him will fail. So he says, don't do that. It's not going to work. But if you seek me and keep me above all and desire my glory, life will begin to work. You'll have the things... The things that far exceed, actually, all the things you're searching for. He came to save you so you and I could live with him forever. God drew near. And so whatever experiences and circumstances and challenges you face in life, they pale in comparison now because God drew near. You're no longer alone. Your circumstances no longer have that last word. The pressures you face, the stressful The ways we get stressed out, they don't matter really in the scope of things because God drew near. And that's all that really matters. The angels got the message, verse 13 and 14. And suddenly, that word suddenly is used a lot. These, I I envision these shepherds like a head on their swivel. Glory of the Lord showing around. These angels suddenly show up. And what happens? A worship service breaks out. Verse 13, suddenly there appeared with an angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. I, I kind of wonder in glory if Jay's going to get to kind of be with some of the angels and kind of lead worship. That could be cool. Um, but these, these shepherds are just overwhelmed. The angels get it. Because they're singing glory to God in the highest. I'm sure they were joining us when we were just singing Glory to God in the highest. They sang it before we did. And so they kind of paved the way for us. And the angels got the message. And what you know what it did? It evoked worship. It evoked worship. I wonder if that's true in your life. 
As you go to Christmas and we realize God drew near, what does it evoke in you? Does it evoke worship? Does it evoke ascribing to him his full recognition? The honor due him, the praise and the applause, that God may be glorified in the highest places and the lowest places in any place. And why did the angels break out in praise? Because God had come to dwell among men. His glory had returned, and that's Christmas. In a world consumed with the thoughts of itself, filled with people impressed with each other, having disconnected from the only one worthy of praise, I suggest it's time we get back to what really matters and catch a glimpse of him who alone is awesome, incomprehensible. He is the infinite, inexhaustible God, and it's this God who came and dwelt among us, this God who changed everything, the God of glory. I've had certain moments in life where, you know, you see people famous. I was, I was in, a, in Chicago in a, in a restaurant and eating with a friend of mine, and, and in walked several Chicago Bulls. I thought, dude, this is cool. And you could hear the buzz. Like, hey, they're pointing at this guy. I mean, you get a seven-foot guy walking by. He's going to get your attention. And his girlfriend was, like, up to his waist. I'm like, that's kind of interesting. And, uh, and, and, but everyone's like, oh, there's this. There's it. They're the Chicago Bulls. And they're all excited, and there's a buzz in the place. And we get the same way. I mean, if you were, if you were shopping at the marketplace and, and in walk Carrie Underwood, there might be a little attention. I mean, there might be a few people going, hey, isn't that Carrie Underwood? And, and some would, oh, you know. And, uh, and some would be brave enough to walk up and say, hey, could you sign this? Or you got a new tape for me out in the car? You know, um, we, there would be a buzz, right? The buzz of heaven is Jesus. There's nobody else because there's nobody else that compares. That's the buzz of heaven. That's the buzz of the angels when they came down. It didn't matter who else was there. Jesus was there. And they sang. They did the only thing they knew, worship. Because God's glory had returned. That's Christmas. God's glory's returned. And we worship that God. We don't worship the holiday. We worship God. And if we don't, we totally missed it. We totally blew it. Don't say you had a good Christmas if you didn't worship, because you didn't. You had a bad one. You had an empty one. You didn't have a good one. Because Christmas is about worshiping God and all his glory. So how do we respond to this? Well, one, we recognize the news is glorious, so share him. I might be out of order, so forgive me, sound guy. My bad. The news is glorious, so share him. I mean, Chronicles exhorts us to do that. Speaking to God's people, it says, tell of his glory among the nations. That means to everybody. That means everybody you encounter. Tell of his glory, his wonderful deeds among all people. I think that's two-faced. We tell this dying world around us of who Jesus is, and then we tell of his wonderful deeds. Oh, by the way, way this great God who spoke this creation into existence, this great God came to earth. He drew near in his wonderful deeds as he died for you. That's good news. Share it. Tell somebody. We celebrate Christmas when we share the message. Good news is God's glory's return. That through Jesus Christ, we have access to a relationship with the living God. That's really what the book of Hebrews is all about. 
A Savior is born, and God's no longer silent. He has spoken that first Christmas and still is. A Savior's been born for you. God has bridged the gap. The news is glorious. God with us, share it. The second one is the child is glorious. Worship him. He is good. He is glorious. Not just yesterday and not just today or not just tomorrow. He's good and glorious forever. Forever. And so push him into the center of your existence today. Make him the center of your life. Because the more you know of God, the more glorious he becomes. The more his awesomeness is evident. Because if Christmas is only about the shiny gifts, it's only about the meal you got planned, if it's only about the other people who show up, if that's your Christmas, you missed it. You totally missed it. The shepherds couldn't help but not miss it. Glory to the Lord showing around. The angels got it. They jumped in and they began to worship. The shepherds were never the same. We're told in Peter that the angels even look at the redemption and scratch their head. It says they're trying to search out the redemption of man. So the angelic realm's even looking at Christmas going, what just happened? And so we got some worshiping folk, some plain worshiping folk, who are never the same. And there was only one response that was appropriate. Worship. It's the only appropriate response to the glory of God. This Christmas, open your arms. Cry out, Jesus, I want more of you. I want more of God. I honor you, and I sing with the angelic realm, glory in the highest. Might that be our song. Might that be our heartbeat. As we bow in prayer, I'm going to have the worship team come up, and once again, I hope that you and I will join the angels. And so as worship team comes up, let's pray. Lord, how fantastic is the news you drew near. How incredible is the fact that on that starry night so many years ago, your glory returned. And God, I hope your people are encouraged because you showed up to just shepherds, just normal people like us. And it tells me a lot. It says you drew near and you want to know me. You want to know us more intimately. And you want God to evoke in us a deeper worship. That we would experience the privilege, the power, the peace of having you at the center of our lives. Jesus, you're the buzz of heaven. Might you be what we declare. And what we say, what we do, and even now as we sing, would it be your name, Jesus? The word became flesh. Might it be your name on our lips and your name that reigns supreme in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.